If you have your Bible, if you'd be opening it to 1 Samuel, we're going to start in chapter 9 and work through a portion of chapter 10 along with it. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you're welcome to look on the screen, but you can also take the Pewback Bible in front of you and open there. This is on page 207. And if you just don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, would encourage you to take that book home with you as our gift to you. And please commit to read it. What are you looking for in a president? It's election season. We're starting to feel the bug. And so if we already hadn't heard a lot about the presidential election of 2020 for now it seems like four years, uh, we're now again pressed with it but as you think about qualifications and about what would make in your mind a good president what are the things that you think of maybe somebody who's decisive take charge makes us look good in the eyes of the world somebody who is articulate or somebody has certain stances that you appreciate what about a boss if you have the opportunity to switch employers throughout your career and you're thinking about whether or not committing to a long-term tenure somewhere, what's the kind of boss that you look for? Is it somebody who's relaxed, lets you do the work that you have been hired to do? Uh, somebody who encourages you? Or maybe somebody who has connections that you think could help you get ahead? What about a spouse? You know, well, you've, most of you have chosen your spouse by now, but if you were looking for one, uh, what was it that first drew you to your spouse? What were the qualifications that stuck out to you that this is the one for me? Well, in our text today, we're going to see the, the outworking of what the people wanted and the king they had chosen. You know, God is going to give his people a king. He is the one that chooses Saul to be king, but yet we need to see Saul is chosen as a way for God to give the people what they wanted. And what we're going to see is that the qualifications of Saul matched up with the wants of the people, but did not prepare them well for what they really needed. And so before we look at this passage in detail, let's ask the Lord's help to see how we have done the same thing in our own lives with him. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom and clarity into your word that we might both understand it, but also that we might see how we have chosen sin instead of choosing you. Uh, help us to turn from our vain idols, turn from the things of this world, and to look into your glorious face and to find all we need in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, we see natural selection. I've just, I don't have fancy points for this sermon. We've just got some headings. So 1 and 2 of chapter 9 is natural selection. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, to bring us up to speed from last week, Samuel was 
nearing the end of his tenure as Israel's judge. And the elders of the people wanted to prevent a leadership vacuum from happening whenever he was gone, and they knew that his sons weren't the ones to fill that void. And so they approached Samuel to ask, or we might even say demand, a king. And according to Deuteronomy 17, which we looked at, that request in and of itself wasn't bad, but what was bad was that they had rejected God as their king. And the Lord instructed Samuel to spell out for them what having a human king would really look like and not just their false expectations. But even after he'd given them that warning, the people still wanted a king anyway. And so God told Samuel to give them one. And so at that point, Samuel sends everyone home, presumably to wait until the Lord revealed who the man would be. We don't know how long they had to wait, but here in chapter 9, the focus shifts to a man named Saul. And these first two verses tell us a lot about him. We're meant to see Saul as the natural selection for king, the people's choice, if you will. And this was the king they wanted. He fit the bill of chapter 8, verse 20. But there there are subtle cues throughout this description that suggests that while Saul was the king they wanted, he wasn't the one that they needed. From the outside, everything looked great. But once he was put into power, that power would reveal what was on the inside. And before we get to Saul, we start with Kish, his father. The first thing we're told about him is that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, Now, on the fundamental level, that means that Saul was eligible to be king, just like our presidents and many other countries' presidents have to be natural-born citizens. But much more significant here is the recent history of the tribe of Benjamin. In the days of the judges, when there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the tribe of Benjamin led the way in godless rebellion. In the last three chapters of the book of Judges, we see basically a repeat of Sodom and Gomorrah happening in a Benjaminite town called Gibeah. And to make matters worse, when the whole nation rallied together against the men of Gibeah, the people of Benjamin refused to surrender the town up to judgment. Now, do you know what Benjaminite town Saul happened to be from? It was Gibeah. You can look at chapter 10, verse 26. Now, in our political climate, with a vetting process that would make our grandmothers blush, you would think that this kind of information would have come up in the process as a problem. This isn't to say that everyone from Benjamin was doomed to be miserable failures and rotten. But if the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, then we should expect that this wasn't the tree you'd want to be eating from for your first person to be king. So then what can we make of the people overlooking this kind of dicey history for Saul? Well, for starters, he was from an immensely prominent, well-to-do family. His little meanie genealogy there goes back five generations to Saul's great, great, great grandfather. Now, we have Ancestry.com, 
we can find out where we came from back to Noah, apparently, and it doesn't really matter if we came from anything. But for this to be recorded like this means that Saul came from a known family. They were wealthy, influential, and established. He had the sort of pedigree that we would expect for a king. And this is brought out even further in the description of Saul we find there in verse 2. We're told he's incredibly handsome and that he's got a neck like a giraffe, which apparently is a good thing at this point. We're also told that he's young, but maybe to give you some encouragement, we've had a couple of 40-year-old birthdays this year, but given the age of Jonathan's son and the, uh, of Jonathan, his son, and the events of chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Saul is probably 40 at this point. The idea of young here is just meant full of life. He, he's full of vitality. And this is going to be important to keep in mind so that instead of viewing him like an immature adolescent, you'll understand that he at several different points should know better than the way he's acting. So just to sum up for us, Saul was established, he was rich, good-looking, full of vitality, he was a standout, and possibly, although I'm not confident about the author's intentions here, he could be viewed as having skill as a warrior given Benjamin's track record with having lots of skilled warriors with the left hand. Now friends, is it obvious to you that this would have been the natural selection of the people based on what their eyes could see? If you just had a, land, a, a lineup of people standing before you and you had to pick one based on what you could discern about what was in front of you, this would be the one you would pick. But please don't misunderstand me. The Lord is the one who chose Saul to be the nation's first king, but given the context He chose Saul because he matched the criteria Israel wanted in a king. God was giving His people the king they wanted, the king they'd chosen, in order to show them what they really needed. Because do you see what's missing in in Saul's description? Absolutely nothing is said about his relationship with the Lord. Absolutely nothing is said about his character. Everything looked good on the outside, but what about the inside? Now, just as a direct application for us, although we could think about this in all kinds of ways, for those of you who are single and would like to be married one day, what are you looking for in a spouse? What makes your list of qualifications? Maybe good family, good looks, good sense of humor, good job, good education, good bank account. What about godly? What about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? The order of importance in our qualifications on what we think we must have and what we kind of like to have, well, that reveals a lot about the order of our heart's affections. It shows us what really matters to us. Now, I can't avoid saying at this point that if you're a Christian, you should have 
zero business dating, courting, or marrying someone who isn't a Christian. Everything else about them might be great. It might make you feel like nobody else has. But if what's most important about them isn't right, and that they're not seeking the Lord, then don't link your life with them. Now, for those of you with uh, kids in the home, your parents, I know most of us right now, the thought of giving our kids over to be married just seems crazy. But the reality is it'll be here before we know it if the Lord allows. But the fact is, we need to get in the habit of pointing out the godliness of our spouses to our kids. It's great not not saying don't do this. It's great to tell them how pretty mommy is. It's great to tell them how funny daddy is or to, to praise something they've done, some meal they've made. But we want to train them to value what is most important first. And so when we see things that we know are the Lord working in our spouse's lives, then we want to show them that that's what they should ultimately care about. And a lot of times, the natural selection our instincts and our culture tell us to make are what's, aren't what's best for us. And so we should ask the Lord to give us wisdom and to guide us in the decisions that would please Him. Next, after natural selection, we see divine appointment. This will be the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 3. Divine appointment. Natural selection, now moving to divine appointment. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to them, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill of the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. 
Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you, send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because of their cry has come to me. When Samuel heard Saul, Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg that, and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when the day and when they had come down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Now throughout this section, I know it's lengthy, uh, but narrative text uh, functions this way, and so I don't really make any apologies for it. But if you wanted to go back and count, like I have tried to do, there's something like 15 specific incidences of the Lord providentially orchestrating the events leading up to Saul's anointing. From man's perspective, this all started when Saul's dad lost some donkeys. But from the Lord's perspective, this was the way that he was going to show Samuel who to anoint as king. And Kish told Saul to go look for the donkeys with one servant. They gave it the old college try, but when they had come up with nothing, even though they had ranged through Ephraim, Shalishah, Shalim, Benjamin, and Zuth, and were at the point of giving up, they found themselves right at the city where Samuel happened to be. And what's more is that this one particular servant that had gone with Saul, knew who Samuel was, knew where he was, and knew what kind of man he was. And this servant also happened to have a little bit of money with him to alleviate Saul's objection to going to Samuel empty-handed. Now, looking for someone they didn't know in a town that they didn't know could have been impossible. But the first people they ran into were able to pinpoint within seconds the exact man they were looking for and where he would be at that exact moment. They'd been traveling for three days, 
But the first man they saw as they went into the city just happened to be the man they were looking for according to the directions given to them from these women they met outside town. Now the narrator takes a, a brief aside here to fill us in on some of the backstory there in verses 15 and 16. The Lord had already put Saul in motion two days earlier But the day before he got to town, the Lord told Samuel that he was coming, when he was coming, who he was, and who he was going to be. Saul thinks he's going to Samuel for him to tell him about donkeys. But Samuel knows the Lord has sent Saul to him to make him king. And in fact, the Lord specifically tells him that Saul is the one he has chosen when he sees him in verse 17. In other words... You couldn't make this any clearer. The detailed instructions that Samuel gives to Saul all communicate to Saul that he's been expecting him. This isn't spontaneous. It's all been prearranged. And if Samuel's response to their meeting wasn't enough to prove that to Saul, then his comment about the donkeys before he's asked about the donkeys would have cleaned that up for him for sure. Samuel is signaling to Saul that there are much more important things going on here than finding some farm animals. The wealth and assets of the entire nation are about to be at his disposal. And Samuel has no idea, excuse me, Saul has no idea what Samuel's talking about. And even though Samuel seems to know everything about him, down to his donkeys, The comment he makes in verse 20 makes Saul feel like Samuel must not know him at all. And we get the sense that far more than just some good old-fashioned Israelite hospitality, Samuel has actually planned this feast specifically in honor of the king-to-be. Out of a group of 30 people he's never met, Saul is seated at the head of the table and given a pre-selected prime cut of meat, which would have been the porterhouse, naturally. That's not true, but that would be my choice. Saul and everyone else there, as he's being honored in this way, just have to be scratching their heads saying, who is this guy? Why are we treating him like he's royalty? You see, this young Benjamite, 40 years old, who couldn't find some donkeys, had wanted to give up, didn't bring enough provisions, and wasn't even aware of Samuel, was now his guest of honor and was about to be told the word of God for him, from him. Now we're going to hear this repeated in the next section, but look back for just a moment at those verses, 16 and 17. Now, we know that things don't end well for Saul in his reign as king, but the Lord's intentions for him as king at the start are good. We might expect the Lord to be angry toward his people or to have disowned them for their rejection of him as their king, but that's not what we find. It's true that Saul was the people's choice for a king, and we can see some red flags right out of the gate. But the Lord was working to redeem even what they wanted for His people's good. Now this is the hideousest part of the whole sermon, and so I, I need you to stay with me for just a moment. We all make bad decisions, or at least less than best decisions, every day. 
There are real consequences for all of our decisions, even though most of those, we have totally no awareness of how they're impacting us. However, because of God's patience, mercy, and love for us in Christ, God redeems all of our choices for our good. Now, in Israel's case, their poor decision for a king like all the nations was going to be redeemed by God to save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. God would use Saul to deliver his people out of their suffering to a certain degree for a certain amount of time. Saul would govern the people in such a way as to curb their inclination to sin. However, the Lord's redemption of their decisions didn't alleviate their responsibility for those decisions. He would work good from their bad decisions, but as we can all testify, greater blessing comes from making decisions that honor the Lord. The same is true for us, friends. You see, there is great comfort for us in knowing that even though we are prone to pick poor princes, the Lord will not relinquish His role as our King. Did you notice in verse 16 that the Lord tells Samuel He will anoint Saul to be prince over His people, not king. They had rejected God as their king, but because of His love for them, He would not advocate His reign over them. If we are in Christ this morning, then our Lord will not let us go. He allows us to make bad decisions, which we are responsible for, but He will not ultimately give us over to them. He binds our wandering hearts to Himself by showing us the kindness of His redemption even through our sinful actions. Now church, we need to be careful here. God's kindness to us isn't intended to encourage us to continue in sin so that grace may abound. If you're committing open, unrepentant sin, and the Bible speaks clearly against it, then I'm not here telling you, don't worry, God's going to redeem it. I'm telling you to repent. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. As some of us are prone to wrongly view truths like these, like a license to sin. I'm not talking to you in what I'm about to say. I'm talking to everybody else. Many of you have very tender consciences, and you are very prone to anxiety and despair about the impact that poor choices that you've made in your life will have on you. You can feel overwhelmed with the prospect of making the wrong decision before you've made it, or you can be fearful about the ripple effect of a less than best decision and what it might have an impact throughout the rest of your life. Such that it's almost, you could describe it as paralyzing. But loved ones, as long as Christ is your King, then you don't need to worry about any of your decisions being beyond redemption. Redemption. 
Yes, our decisions matter. And we should certainly be prayerfully discerning before we make them. And then genuinely repentant if we make sinful ones. But we will always make poor decisions in this life. There is no possibility of perfection this side of eternity. And that means we should stake our hope, stake our lives, not on always making good decisions, but on our King who will always work even our bad ones for our good. Finally, in verses 1-16 through of chapter 10, we see short-term solution. So Saul was the natural selection of the people, but he happened, according to divine appointment, to be king. But he would only be a short-term solution to the people's problems. Look at verses 1 through 16. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go out from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of the prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to offer to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him had previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we, had, when we saw that they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Samuel's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now, even though Samuel had tried to dissuade the people against wanting a king, he still celebrated and honored the king, the prince that God had chosen. 
I think we see something just in passing of Samuel's humility. He was anointing the king as the leader of God's people that would replace him as judge. And now the oil signified that Saul was the one set apart by God to serve in this capacity. He would be endowed or covered with the Holy Spirit to accomplish his assigned task. And even though he wasn't the best choice, Saul would still be used by God to bless Israel. And as the Lord's heritage, he had great concern to take care of his people, and he would use Saul to do just that for a time. Now, in case Saul needs some convincing, in addition to the chapters of 9 already, the Lord in his kindness gives him multiple signs to prove that there is no confusion about his selection. Kind of reminds us of what the Lord did with Gideon. There are two men in a specific place with a specific saying. There are then three men in a specific place carrying specific items and a specific interchange between them. Then there are a specific group of men accompanied by a specific instrument doing a specific action. Then a specific change is going to happen in him at a specific time. As Samuel is giving Saul directions and landmarks around the, along the way to lead him to the right conclusion, and that is, the Lord has chosen you to be the nation's king. Now, we can just read this and forget what it would have been like as someone who had never experienced anything like this. And it could have been a little hard to take in, especially given the fact that he's basically got to sit on this news for a week But Samuel encourages Saul not to worry about what's next. The same God who had sovereignly orchestrated all of the details of all of these events together hadn't forgotten to take care of what was next. God would be with Saul. We're not told how Saul responds in that moment, but I think probably dumbfounded would be a safe bet. Yet it seems instead of just blabbering on with a bunch of questions about what to do, Saul goes forward with the information Samuel gave him, and then everything Samuel told him happened that very day. The text says in verse 9 that God gave Saul another heart. Now this language, and then coupled with the Spirit rushing upon him, probably make us think of the New Testament and salvation. But these events are taking place under the Old Covenant and not the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, the filling of the Spirit was associated with carrying out certain offices or roles like prophet, priest, and king. And that is to say, this isn't Saul's conversion story or his testimony, though it might seem that way at first glance. He's being equipped by God for the specific work He has called him to, which required the Spirit's enabling. The same language is used in connection with Samson in the book of Judges when he was given uncanny strength to use in some specific action. And Saul's prophesying in the proverb that started because of it are evidences of the Lord's hand on his life. That's why of all the things that happen, this is the one that gets repeated. The people who knew him could tell he wasn't the same, but they didn't know why. 
There's a man in verse 12 who seems to be on the, uh, possibly onto the source of his prophecy as God being the Father, the one who causes people to prophesy. But what's the significance of verse 13? Saul met the prophets coming down from the high place, presumably as he was going up. So they're kind of passing on the way. His instructions from Samuel had nothing to do with him going up to the high place except to do whatever he found to do. Now, I don't want to force this on the text, but I take this to mean that following Saul being filled with the Spirit, being given another heart, and prophesying because of the Lord's filling, he went up to the high place to worship the Lord. That's what he felt compelled to do, which also indicates to us the Lord's work in his life. When he finally made it back home after an eventful day, he ran into his uncle. And Saul told him they'd seen Samuel. His uncle wanted to know what he'd said. And it seemed reasonable that the uncle maybe suspects something. He's been gone, seen Samuel, he's being shady about it, but... Not to mention the fact that the anointing oil was perfumed. It had a very strong smell. So then when you show up and you haven't been around and you haven't been home to be able to shower, presumably, after a long thing, and you smell nice, well, then somebody wants to know, have you been in Bed Bath & Beyond? And Samuel doesn't lie to his uncle, but he doesn't tell him everything. He kept the kingdom a secret. Saul had been selected by God as a short-term solution to the people's problems. He would be used to save them from their enemies, but only temporarily. There would be some good that came from his reign, but it wouldn't be all good. And because of that, there are some similarities with the man chosen to be Israel's first king and the king of kings, but there are also many differences you see, no one would have chosen Jesus to be their king based on how he looked. He was born not into a rich, noble, well-to-do family, but into a poor family. He wasn't formally educated. In fact, the people who'd watched him grow up and knew his family didn't think that there was anything significant about him. Such that when he came to his own hometown and prophesied, the people reject him as Brother Wade read earlier. But do you know there was a time during Jesus' earthly ministry where in John 6, the people were about to come and take him by force to make him king? And do you know what happened leading up to that scene? It was after Jesus had fed the 5,000. And Jesus told them plainly that He knew that they weren't seeking Him because they saw signs of who He was, that He was who He said He was, that He is and was God. He knew that the reason they were coming and they wanted Him to be their King was because their tummies had been filled. They wanted a King to satisfy their physical needs but not their spiritual needs. That's what the people wanted from Saul too. But unlike Saul, Jesus wasn't anointed in response to a bad decision of the people, 
that the Lord was going to redeem. Jesus was anointed by God as the redemption of His people for all their sin. Jesus already was the King, but He left His throne in heaven to come to earth, to become a man, to live without sin, and yet die for the sins of the world. He wasn't the King the people had chosen. He was the King who had to die because we've all chosen lesser kings. And when God raised Him from the dead on the third day, the greatest work of redemption had been accomplished for all to see. You see, Jesus isn't God's short-term solution to get you through that bad breakup, to get you through that job loss. Jesus is the eternal Savior of all those who repent of their sins and believe in Him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, first, we're glad that you're here. You're very welcome. And without knowing anything about you, it's safe to assume that you've made a bad choice or two along the way. And while it might not be the first thing that comes to your mind, without knowing you, I know, like me, the worst decision you've ever made is to reject God as your king for a lesser king. Maybe a relationship, your career, or your family, or some form of pleasure. Maybe you've turned to them to alleviate some pressure temporarily, but they've left you well aware that they can't satisfy your greatest need. You see, your bad choices are ultimately bad because they reveal your rejection of God. And you are responsible and accountable to Him for that rejection. But He has provided the King, the true King, the King of kings, to save you from all your sin, from every bad decision you've ever made. He stands ready to redeem you if you will come to Him in faith. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be glad to talk to you in just a few minutes. I'll be down front or you can catch me at the end of the service or talk to whoever you came with. But church, just as a word of application for us as we close. Now, the gospel is good news. And we are the reporters now, I know we don't like the news because it's more annoying than ever to watch it, but yet we find we're watching more of it than we ever have, and so it's a vicious cycle. But Saul didn't tell his uncle anything about the matter of the kingdom. And this isn't the narrator's purpose of what he's saying to get to me to a bridge of the gospel, but I am going to take it, okay? That wasn't Saul's approach. He had to wait a week before the matter could be spilt. But that shouldn't be our approach. How many of us, we walk around with what we claim to be the greatest news that has ever been told in our back pockets, refusing to share it. Everything gets trumpeted and plastered as this is cutting edge, current events, news. And it's garbage. But we have the best news in all the world and we keep our lips zipped it makes no sense if we truly believe in this king who has come to save us 
then we have every reason to share with all who are here the facts of what has happened. There is no one like our God. What kind of God takes His people's rejection and gives them the king they wanted but commits to redeem it because He loves them more than we could understand? This is a kind of king worthy of our worship. A kind of king worthy of calling others to put their hope and their lives in. And so although we don't have the details worked out like Saul did of all the events that are going to take place and the people that we're going to interact with, we can stand just as assured that God is the one who is orchestrating the threads of our lives to weave them together in such a way that they would give Him glory. So then as we reflect even this afternoon on the ways that we as God's people have chosen lesser kings, And how what we've chosen has never stood up or become what we thought it would be. But yet God in His great mercy to us has redeemed that. He's taken that addiction we've had and give us an opportunity to minister to those addicted. He's taken that divorce that we had and He's given it an opportunity for us to minister to others in their brokenness. He's taken our love of self And He's shown us that instead true joy comes in loving and in serving others. This is our God who doesn't leave us where we are, but instead takes us and molds us more and more into the image of His Son so that He gets the glory and we should praise Him for it. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would be glorified in our lives even as You take our less than best and poor, bad, sinful decisions and redeem them for your glory and our good. Help us to see that. Help us to understand what that means about your love for us in Christ. And thank you for sending him to redeem us out of all our iniquities. Give us grace to share this news and to praise you because there is no one like you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.